Welcome to Nordic by Nature, a podcast on ecology today, inspired by the Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness, who coined the term deep ecology. As Ness once wrote, there seems to be no place for place anymore. The things we need appear like magic into our lives. And for that convenience, we often have to sacrifice connection and community. We have become quite isolated from each other as we become more dependent on faceless corporations to provide the things we need, rather than knowing the people who produce them. Our ecological selves are being separated from the very idea of home, but somehow the loss of place is felt on a deeper level, and the longing for home persists. According to Ness and Deep Ecology, we need to articulate what it means to belong to a place. For example, Number one, as humans, we are locally and globally connected at all times. Our everyday life patterns and culture interweave with every other living thing. We need to understand this experience if we are to create profound relationships of stewardship for our own lives and the lives of future generations. Number two, we must not confuse a place with our own house. We do not own a place. Other humans and non-humans have the right to be part of an ecology of place. It's important for us to share our sense of place with others, for that place to thrive. It doesn't threaten our own identity or our own way of life to invite others to share the spaces where we feel we belong. Number three. Natural experiences are not commodities to be consumed. A place is a living entity, a collection of interconnected ecosystems. A place has value independent of the services it provides to humans. But humans can be an integral and natural part of an ecosystem. Number four. There is wilderness and there is countryside. One sees nature as separate to humankind and the other sees humankind as a keeper of nature. Both concepts are human constructs. Number five, we need to regain a sense of scale. Places and their ecosystems are being degraded by massive amounts of waste and pollution. Microscopic damage is also occurring, depleting our soil and our nutrition. We must also conserve the invisible equilibrium on which all life relies. In this episode on belonging, you will hear from three people who have thought a lot about what home means to them and what defines our relationship to a place. First, you will hear the words of Andrew and Kyla Blancheflower, teepee dwellers and makers whose way of life can be an inspiration for us all to live a little lighter. Andrew and Kyla met and fell in love in Oregon in the United States and decided to raise their family there with a closer contact to the earth and mother nature. You will then hear from the voice of Yvette Neshi Lokots, teacher of hand drumming and making and practitioner of the medicine wheel or sacred hoop healing and tribal member of the Potawatomi nation. I hope you have time to sit back and simply relax and listen with your headphones.
Blessed be to the travelers and the ones who stayed at home. Blessed be to the travelers and the ones who stayed at home. We are always at home, wherever we may roam. We are always at home, wherever we may roam. Blessed be to the elders and the ones who have passed on by. Blessed be to the elders and the ones who have passed on by. My name's Andrew. I've lived in teepees since the early 90s. The story goes back to those days in Hume. We would go up to Saddleworth Moors and graze on mushrooms in the autumn. Like I think that was my first taste of a system that was bigger than any political system, that, that is the system that is, I could just call it Mother Earth or Gaia right now. We'd come back to Hume, like this low-rise six-story social housing disaster, which was actually great for squats and young single people. And I think I'd forgotten that, that time of my life, my early growing up until my late teens, that there was such a longing and such a, a missing. I remember that when I see people in town these days, just with that confusion or that kind of, there's something bigger than this. I, I know that there's something bigger than this or just something, there has to be more. I remember having these conversations with Shen Yen, who was then named Martin, and it would be like, well, what's the most amazing life that you could dream of, that you could imagine? For Shen Yen, it was being an ordained monk in India, Tibet. For me, it was living in a teepee. And then it was like, okay, well, you know, let's just try moving towards that and see what happens. And so that's what happened. And then I met people that live in a teepee community in Wales of all places and like people that live in teepees in Wales all year round to me was a revelation that people could still actually do that and I met some of those people at various festivals and at various healing gatherings and they were just making a cup of tea around the fire and I was just perceiving these people like these amazing epic characters that knew how to just boil a kettle in a few minutes blessed be to the children and the ones who are yet to come Blessed be to the children and the ones who are yet to come. We are always at home, wherever we may roam. We are always at home, wherever we may roam. I love the way we met. I think it's, it's so romantic. He was playing the penny whistle. There was one evening he was playing in this little town called Ashland in Oregon. And I was out for a walk. I was actually quite heartbroken that night, and I was going on a walk with a friend, sort of crying and sharing my, my broken heart. And then we parted ways, this friend and I, and I heard this whistle in the distance. It just felt so healing and soothing to me, and so I decided I would close my eyes and walk to where that whistle was coming from. And now here we are, you know, uh, however many years this is later. This is like almost 20 years later, and we have five children. Basically, we live in teepees because we can be on the ground around the fire. Like, it's a way of manifesting our elements directly. I can get wood and water from the find a spring or a creek or something. There's, like, two basics taken care of as far as elements. At the moment, everyone's busy in the shop 
all the kids are in there making things. We're making shoes for the trip and making backpacks and traveling lodge and a bag for the traveling lodge. And Isla's making some gifts. She wants to bring these baby carriers to give to some kids that she knows over there. Yeah, so everyone's really busy using the sewing machines right now and making things for the journey, and that's a lot of fun. So we have five children. All of our children were born to living in the teepee. That's sort of one of the things that I kind of captivated me about Andy was that he he lived in a teepee and he had come from a teepee community in Wales and he knew how to make them, how to live in them in a way that wasn't like rough in it or camping, but quite luxuriously. And so all of our children were born to the teepee. Not all of them were born in it. Some were born outside of the teepee or in water. Or Our firstborn was born in a birth center. It was a beautiful birth. And it was that birth that then set up the rest for us to be pretty strong about just having him and I be there for the births. So we had a midwife for our first child, and she was a wonderful woman. She's dear in my heart. I have sought counsel with her throughout all the rest of our children, but not as a regular midwife, and she did not attend any more births. I'm grateful for her, and it really helped me get in touch with the wisdom in my bones of just how to, how to birth with a lot of love with whatever family was around. It was when we were pregnant with our second child that we wanted to just be somewhere wild where we could feel really comfortable and at home. And so we decided to just go to those mountains in the distance and we set up our lodge. And I don't know, a little while after we set it up, maybe some days or so, someone came down and it turned out they were the title holders. But they loved the teepee. We made them tea, which is what we'll often do when surprise visitors come. And you know, let the fire do its magic on them like it does. They came down and they had tea and they welcomed us and said that they, you know, they had access to thousands of acres. They opened it up to us. I mean, that the short version. And that's where the valley, the teepee valley model, where Andy came from in Wales, had such a strong influence in this little place in Oregon, which we ended up calling Teepee Village. It's amazing that the, those stories, those people, uh, those events in Wales there, all of those, how far they traveled and how they're like seeds that floated over and just grew in this other place. And I guess stories do that. They kind of travel like that. People would come and visit and find out if they wanted to stay for a while or not. Um, it was a pretty organic process because, you know, if, if people were up for it, fetching wood and water and cooking on a fire and living with the elements and dealing with mold and rodents and, you know, rain dripping in and all of these things that have to be dealt with, then they would, you know, they'd make themselves a teepee and rise to it and love it. And other people would find, you know, quickly or not so quickly that it wasn't for them. And so there was no need for any, you know, egos to get involved to say, you can be here, you can't be here. The earth did the sorting out, I guess, maybe. Teepee Valley in Wales, they always had that big lodge that was always open and it brings so much perspective. If we want new stories and new narratives, we can look back to stories that are 5,000 years old. What's so common in a lot of those folk tales 
is the answer to the problem comes from the periphery. It doesn't come from where we're looking at the problem. Like it comes from a spirit out of the lake or an old woman in the roots of the tree or, but we have to be open to that. We have to be at that point. Maybe it's not going to be until we're at that point of desperation that we will be open to that and hear it. May all beings be fed, nourished, whole, healthy, happy, loved and in love. May the whole world be in love. May all beings be fed, nourished, whole, healthy, happy, loved and home mean thinking about these things are really they're meaningful to me and we talk about them often in our home it's been quite a thread for us because of i guess we kind of considered ourselves as displaced which is interesting to say because andy isn't from the west of turtle island but we made our family there all the kids were born there. This whole village frothed out of the ground and blossomed there. Other children in the community were born there. For many years, we all moved together seasonally. There was a summer grounds and winter grounds. And so we we're very connected with a place there. We moved within a range, a, a valley and a mountain range. And so we had high elevation camp and we had a low elevation camp. And seasonally, we're moving together. We often hear that the only place where that's normal is where you're at. <laughs> it's like the Nordic regions. It's like that that kind of stuff is more uh, widely accepted and known. And here it is a little bit. I mean, sometimes we're in places where we might be a bit more of the freak show. We don't find so many, but enough that we aren't alone, really. Right now, all winter, we've been living on this beautiful ridge and with three other families. I mean, a community doesn't need to be a, a huge amount of people. There's enough people here where we can bounce off each other. And there's enough you know, diversity amongst the different skills between the grown-ups that the kids can like, you know, they go to what's inspiring for them for input. And there's other children here and they have, you know, this wide open wild space to just be in and learn about together. There is some great power to us knowing the stories of a landscape and feeling how our stories are woven into those stories and then we know our place because we know the land. Place is relevant in talking about home. But I don't think it's exclusive to place. And I think it could be, at least here in the United States, there's that consciousness of, it's like, it's settler colonialism that really claims a place and says, this is mine.
stories are really intimate and woven in with place. Like they come from a place and they emerge out of the ground. As far as a new narrative, it's becoming apparent that a, a monolithic, a single narrative isn't really the way forward. It seems like in order to find unity, we're having to kind of decentralize. Someone a few years ago on a radio show was talking about that the only thing that unites us is our uniqueness. Like the thing that unites us is our uniqueness. We're all different. So the ability to adapt. We're forgetting how to adapt. People are forgetting how to write down on paper. Through the seduction of convenience, people are forgetting how to feel a bit uncomfortable and like rise to the occasion. I don't know what there is to do other than just try and be resilient and adapt. That brings it back to that relationship with place being something more dimensional than mere economics. It is just one single level or dimension of how a holistic relationship to place can be. I think at that time I might have been very much one to say that home and place were more closely related. But then as TP Village, I mean, the story is tragic and it's beautiful. And it was, you know, the land title shifted hands. And that's a long story. It was enough for us. That push was enough. And we got a school bus real quick and made a quick conversion and, and got on the road. And for the first year, I would say we traveled around just traumatized and gutted like we had lost everything that that meant something to us like the birthplace of our children and we had such a vision woven in with that place of a future of a way forward that we were so dedicated to and and believed so firmly in tending the land tending wild plants returning seasonally watching it grow living lightly with a place and as a people as a community so then that's when I think the journey of being separated from place but still maintaining home began for me personally. And then we kind of heard that call to go to Standing Rock. Well, not kind of. It came through really strong. That's another story. I mean, it was quite an incredible direction for us to head in after having gone through the seven years of Teepee Village and being able to be in a bus with a workshop that made teepees and we can just pull up to Standing Rock and make shelter and have our home with us and I think that's when maybe the journey began to shift for me in realizing that home was is much bigger than a place because we got there and it felt like we met our people. I met our people and that our people live all around the world. Like people were there from so many places, but there was such this common thread that united us. And we kept saying in so many ways, it was like we had gone home. It had such a profound impact on our lives. We were there for a year. It was the land of the paradox for me, just the richest place I've been. 
spiritual richness was so potent. That fire was burning so strong. And that's what kept us there for that long. And the poverty and pain that's there is equally as strong. It's just the poorest and richest place. And I guess I am speaking beyond our time in camp at Standing Rock because we stayed on further with relatives that we met who live on the various reservations in the Dakotas and uh, lived with them after the camps were closed down in February. We continued on, pitched our lodge with some other people who live between the Pine Ridge Reservation and the Rosebud Reservation. This thing that they pejoratively call the environment as if it's an issue, as if it's something that needs to be taken care of, as if it isn't the whole of everything that all of life runs through. It's a bit out of proportion, I think. We're all very present. We don't have anywhere else to be except right at home and with each other. We like to say that sometimes it's it's kind of like we have seven pairs of eyes. We're like this one body with all these eyes and all these noses and all these ears just kind of moving through space and time together. And and so it feels like we're that much more aware if we're in it together, taking care of each other, paying attention to each other's bodies. And But we heat water on the fire. We have a wash tub. That's how we have baths. The healing journey requires getting sick together. We're blessed to have each other, to have the family. I send a bit of that good feeling out to those who aren't as fortunate to have a family container to hold them through their challenging times. I feel I've humbled and blessed that we, we do have that with each other. And we have all the time. We're so rich with time. So there's just no hurry or there's no loss of job money. Mostly this, you know, getting ill, it has information in there of how to be living even better, how to be more activated in ourselves, maybe. Our bodies are maps. With the way we move in the bus, we've been traveling across the country. It's sort of been a requirement that we be very open. I mean, I guess we could do it in a closed way, but that's just not the way we do it. We move really slowly and always receiving whatever guests we meet. It's so curious to me the way a journey can unfold when we go with such open minds and hearts. Especially with technology these days, we could really plan our route and plan where we stay and close our reality down so much with all this planning and being so destination bound. And and then I think we miss out so much. And so by being so open, we're always in contact with so many different kinds of people, which I think grows in our kids, a kind of adaptability and some resiliency and a way to navigate different cultural contexts. Well, the way we've done chai is to serve it straight out of the bus. Because we have a, a 1988 uh, Chevy Bluebird school bus, like classic American school bus. And that's what we travel. We carry our whole trip in that, which is a TP and a 28-foot, seven-sided, tensile tent shop. So we might just be pulled over in a rest area or in a town. And we'll put a sign up saying, now serving organic chai. On the sign, it used to say, donations welcome, and then we thought, it has a poor aesthetic, so we just 
even scrubbed that off and people still managed to make donations and sometimes sometimes someone wouldn't leave anything most people would leave a couple three dollars occasionally someone's left a hundred dollars or uh, bunches of kale or someone's brought us some venison and or buffalo or whatever and like we pull up in the in the town in the bus and it's got tv poles on the roof and it's painted brown and it's got water protector signs on the side and people are curious and often there's a person in a uniform who's bold enough to come and talk to us and you know we'll charm them but we have to invite everyone in for a cup of tea because if we don't if we're not open then we're dangerous and we're suspicious because we are so different and it's curious like there is a longing people come in and they just smell it and I don't know what we smell like anymore. Like mostly we just smell like wood smoke, I think. But, you know, we'll be cooking in there and there'll be the smell of chai. And time and time again, there's just that longing for trust. I think it's it's not like there's no fear there anymore. It's more like a willingness to engage with that fear. Maybe that's what we have to do in order to stop plundering our ecology, our environment, is just give over and relax and know that there is enough abundance in the world. There's these threads we have that we bring through wherever we go, the teepee and the fire and all the dailies that are required to keep that functioning. And I think those are like it's kind of the main spokes of the basket that kind of give it some structure and some kind of that's their identity. Maybe it's maybe it's like this is what we are as a family. This is what we do. We have our bus and our lodge and we move seasonally and we don't claim any one spot, but we like to meet lots of people and love places as we go. If it's planting trees or building labyrinths or developing springs at different places or transplanting things or gathering plant medicines or building sweat lodges. There's so there's so many ways that we engage with the places that we go and love them where we go. And then we are moving on. But I have to say there is some heartache and sadness about it's almost like we have to keep moving because of the way the system is set up. I'm not entirely anti-stay in one spot. I'm not against that. It's just not viable unless we do it in this very entitled way, this land ownership thing. But tending to a place and loving a place and getting to know the stories of a place and weaving into it, I think that's profound. I think this is crucial, really, for a sense of well-being and for our knowing our own individual place in all of creation. Even when we look at like hunter and gatherer cultures, I don't think that people have ever just wandered around, that there's been a purpose. If it's going for a certain food that is ready in a certain place with a certain time of year, um, you know, when the, when the salmon run or when the maple syrup is flowing, the wild rice is ready. This time last year, we were in New Hampshire and we were tapping maple trees. And we made 15 gallons of maple syrup or something. We still have some left over. But it's it's that way of just diversifying. From my experience of traveling with indigenous peoples and indigenous cultures, it's like there's a, a resilience woven into those kinds of cultures looking back to the dictionary definition of what indigenous means basically emergent from place if i can emerge from a place like the elements that make my body be alive if i can honor that as much as possible like everything else in creation i am a strand in a 
multi-dimensional shimmering tapestry of life that is all my relations so it's like we have all these relationships not just the physical what i can see and hear and feel and touch around me but things that make up what is me like the things within me and without me how does that shimmer in the way that it's supposed to in the way that all the rest of creation has the potential to do if i can perceive it like that there's intention and purpose. It's not kind of a bimbling about. So working with what we have, it's been beautiful. There's people here who take care of this place. They said, come and be here for the winter. And so we have, we've arrived and we've been here as fully as we can. We've loved this place. And it's been amazing arriving in the fall when it was all going to sleep. And now being here in the spring in this completely new landscape. We don't know a lot of these plants and trees, and they're all waking up and coming alive and surprising us at every turn. We had no idea we were surrounded by trees that were going to give off so much color in the spring. It's been beautiful to get to know a new place. It's been quite an epic and beautiful journey. A lot of it just feeling like it's a journey of coming more whole and a lot of weaving. I think we weave so beautifully together. Andy and I. In your imagination, imagine going to a place in nature so beautiful there. This is your special place. A place that you know so well that you may have been many, many times. It could be in your backyard. It could be out in a park by a lake the ocean, and the mountains, your special place. Boju, that's hello in Potawatomi. My name is Yvette Neshi-Lokat. I am from Turtle Island, the United States, and I am a Native American woman. I would like to introduce myself in the old way. You always want to know who your people are, see if you're related. Nishnabe no swin. Benishikwe, Nishé Dodem Jigwe, Dwajen Toma, Wisconsin, Nishé Misho Shkabamben, Nishé Nokmes Gaga, Spreading Wing, Nishé Nos Kabemsi Ben, Nishé Nan Shewekwe. My name is Benishikwe, which means bird woman. My clan is Thunder. I live in Toma, Wisconsin. My grandfather, 
Shkama Ben. My grandfather's name was Shkama. Ben means that he has walked on. He's passed away. His name meant new chief. And my grandmother, who was Ho-Chunk, I don't know how to pronounce her, her Ho-Chunk name, but it meant spreading wing. And my father, Kabemse Ben, Kabemse means to walk on earth. And it's uh, really about the imprint of the moccasin in the soil on grandmother earth. And my mother, who is still living, Shewaikwe, means leading elk. And so that is how we would normally introduce ourselves. And so they, they have an idea of how to address you. It's all about who is connected to you. It's much more personal. I am an enrolled tribal member of the Potawatomi Nation, the uh, Prairie Band. There's nine bands of the Potawatomi Nation. When we were forced onto reservations is when we kind of got split up that way. And that's on my mother's side. Her father, my grandfather, Ashkama Ben, he was the Potawatomi. We followed the, the patriarchal line. And this has more to do with we're enrolled underneath my grandfather's original Alati number when he went onto the reservation. My grandmother on my mother's side is Ho-Chunk. We might classify her as an activist. She was one of those people who would be a part of changing the norm. So she was a very strong woman, my grandmother. Ho-Chunk has been in Wisconsin for hundreds and hundreds of years. The Potawatomi uh, started out on the East Coast and migrated West. On my dad's side, he was a Mexican Indian. Gaki is his nation. Where he is from would have been around the southern border between Texas and northern Mexico. The Yaqui Nation actually is on both sides of a border now. <laughs> I also have some French Canadian as well, intermarried into the Potawatomi Nation and also the Ho-Chunk Nation as well. That is the connection to Turtle Island. Turtle Island comes from an indigenous creation story. What we're talking about is the United States. The story goes, the creator created man. There was this rain. It was a deluge. There wasn't any land to speak of. Animals were trying to survive. The animals would volunteer to dive all the way down to bring up soil to create an island. The turtle volunteered to carry the soil on its back. It was the muskrat that was able to dive all the way down and grab handfuls of soil to bring it up. And so that's how Turtle Island got to be and how everybody got to survive and to thrive is because they all worked together. And it was the turtle who volunteered to carry us on its back. So we have a very strong connection to turtle, turtle medicine. It means that you're very grounded and connected to grandmother earth. And uh, you also have a, a way to, to protect yourself, too. Growing up in the household that I did, there was one way to communicate there and experience life there. And then I would go to my grandparents' house, and that was another layer of a way to communicate because there's certain ways, like any other culture, you don't look an elder in the eye. You don't keep that constant eye contact. It's disrespectful. You're not asking a million questions and those kinds of things. And so then when you'd go to school, it's the complete reverse. It's like if you don't have eye contact, 
It's disrespectful. If you're not asking questions, you're not interested. (laughs) On occasion, I would get into trouble. (laughs) Standing Rock. Literally, it woke up the world. It shook the world. And so much came out of that, both positive and negative. But really, it, it brought the world together. In that one tiny little space, they had over 500 indigenous flags flying, and people from all over the world came, right? The premise was to do this in peace and in ceremony. And for the most part, that was true. There are some things that occurred that, you know, the aftermath, but we all learned a whole lot from it. It really did ignite the passion for people to use their voice in their own backyards. So there's a lot of things that have come out from this. And the Sami came I think they were there like three or four times, different times over that. It wasn't quite a year. It's also a free press. And they were really riding on the edge of uh, an extinction of the free press, really. Um, We've been dealing with the U.S. government for generations. We've survived them time and time and time again. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have people like Leonard Peltier still in prison, um, it doesn't mean that we don't have a high proportion of numbers of an, uh, indigenous people in the prisons. But we've survived this government for a long, long time. A long time. And so that's, that is why Standing Rock was so important because it was a renaissance. It was a reigniting of reclaiming our power as indigenous people. Now, many people would say that we don't have much power, but Standing Rock really showed us that, yes, we do. It started out in a very quiet voice, and it was the the youth that really brought it to the forefront. They turned to the elders that still knew the ceremonies, that still knew how to call in spirit and have spirit present during that whole thing. So many non-Indigenous people to Turtle Island are still very, very interested in the Indigenous culture, to be more specific, in the spirituality. I encourage them to really search out who their people are. But we're carrying our ancestors' wisdom and also their trauma in our DNA and our blood and our bones. And so uh, we can make that connection through our ancestors. You don't have to make that connection through my ancestor. But the culture I grew up in, we talked about spirit all the time. That wasn't anything new. But coming into what's been known as the New Age world, realizing that all these people had Native American guides. And I'm asking, why don't I have Native American guides? Because I don't. Okay, so how come I don't have Chief Red Cloud as my spirit guide? And it's like, that's because you call them ancestors. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, okay. So here, the light bulb went on. But why do so many non-Indigenous people have Native American guides? Because they're being taught or given opportunities to remember their connection to Grandmother Earth. And so with Indigenous people, 
our belief is really about our connection, that we have this very loving and strong connection to Grandmother Earth, protecting sacred sites, cleaning up the water, picking up your own trash, for goodness sake, those kinds of things, right? Is it calling on your spirit guides to help you to rekindle or reconnect to Grandmother Earth? It's hardwired in us two-legged, in us humans, to protect what we love. And if we can remember how much we love the Earth, we're going to protect it. Being indigenous to this continent, there's some things that I took for granted in my culture that I didn't realize until I was a young adult, is that when you grow up in the culture... The, the spiritual connection that we have to the earth, it's just your life. It's your way of being. You don't, you don't question why we do ceremony and call in the four directions, why we address Grandmother Earth and Grandfather Sky, because everything goes back to Grandmother Earth. Our culture is based on our connection to her. It's your life. It's your lifestyle already. There's many of us who do keep that connection and nurture it. Because like any other relationship, you have to pay attention to it. And so sometimes I think that we take uh, for granted that kind of connection. It's when someone else that's not indigenous, they're looking in to this life. They see this connection and they yearn for belonging. And so I think that's where you get a lot of people wanting to have this same kind of connection, but really trying their best to be able to do that. And sometimes it takes on a different, whole different role. In order to retain and to foster, to nurture that relationship to Grandmother Earth, you have to practice it every day. That becomes your lifestyle. That is your life. And so it's a way of being, it's a way of walking this earth, is to be able to, to remember your connection to her. And it becomes your lifestyle. You live it every single day. Cultural misappropriation basically is a, a nice way of saying stealing. The using of a, another culture when it's feeding your ego more than your soul, then I think that you have to step back and say, what did I just steal? When you are an indigenous person and you've lived that life and you have people who are non-indigenous coming into your, into your home, basically, and they feel like they can use it without any of the training, without any of the explanation, Without the foundational information, it's for their ego more than it is for their soul. Many times it's feeding a part of themselves that is not a part of their spirituality. They think it is, but it's really feeding their, their ego. Those are the name droppers. They're keen on the word chief, you know. And I, let me tell you, there are some Native Americans, some indigenous people who get very upset with this, very upset. You know, I've heard it said that, you know, they've taken everything else and now they want to take our souls too. They want to take our, our spirit. 
what do we call ourselves, right? It is important. Whether we call ourselves Native American or Indigenous or First Nation is really for the benefit of the person that we're speaking to that is non-Native. And it's a misnomer. Let's take the term Native American. Native American really is what I would call a misnomer. It has become antiquated because anybody who is born in the United States could say that they're Native American. So it kind of washes out the first people who were on this continent. What do we end up calling ourselves when we have multiple generations who have now resided in the United States that came from a different continent? And so there is this term called colonizers, and that we are being another thing being usurped from us. But in, I, in my world, in actuality, the, the term Native American doesn't really describe the indigenous people here on Turtle Island. It really doesn't describe, in truth, uh, the original people here, and especially not American Indian, because, <laughs> because this man who said he found um, this new world, we were already here, and he was lost. He thought he was in the East Indies. That's how we got the term Indian. It has nothing to do with the original people who were already here. Now, Canada has started a movement, and calling indigenous people from Canada started using the words indigenous and also First Nation, which I think is a, is a bit closer to accurately describing a people who were here originally on this continent. We're still using all these phrases that uh, we slide back and forth between, um, depending on who we're talking to. And I've also found that it's generational. Because my mother, um, who just turned 100 on Saturday, she still uses the terms American Indian or Indian and also uses Native American. No matter how many times I will ask her, you know, who are you referring to, East Indian or, or Indigenous people? And she'll, she'll look, give me this look, and she says, I'm referring to our people. She was part of the mission school uh, generation. And most non-Indigenous people don't realize that's still occurring, that children are still being taken from their homes and placed in boarding schools to create a person who is more non-Indigenous. Still happening in this uh, century. <laughs> Some things are, never change, I suppose. Though. You know, I think language in itself falls short of truly describing the emotions that are underlying. Because even when we use the word indigenous, we have to qualify it indigenous to what continent? Because there are many people who are indigenous, but indigenous to their own part of grandmother earth, right? I think it, we still have to qualify what part of grandmother earth are we referring to when we're talking about indigenous people. Indigenous, it's a start.
in the indigenous world, there is a belief that our culture is connected to our language. And so when you lose the language, you lose your culture. And so much has already been lost. And so there's been a many, about two decades worth of a renaissance where many people are learning their indigenous language. Our ancestors survived, survived so that we could be here. They went through so much for us to be here, to live these lives. They went through genocide. They went through uh, colonization. They did what they had to do to survive so that we could be here. It makes us stronger for what they did for us. We have to be clear in when we use the term ancestor, when I'm using it, I'm talking about and referring to them as the spirituality, the spirit of, not the physical, the spiritual, not the physical place. No. When we're talking about our connection to the earth, we belong to her, not the other way around. <laughs> Literally, our bodies come from her and our bodies return to her when our spirit is released. Our complete physicality is connected to her. Our brain waves are connected to her. She literally gives us life. Ceremony and ritual touches that part of our brain. We recognize that, oh, something important is happening here. It's about making that connection to nature, to all that is really. The creator, all the planets, the sun, the moon, the four directions, to all the animals, to all bodies of water, to all things green, to those who fly, to those who crawl, to those who swim, all of creation, the entire universe. And so when we do those kind of ceremonies, we're all watching and we're listening. And we're also feeling our connection to each other and also our connection to the earth and to all of creation. And that we're reminded that we are a member of nature, that we're not separate from it or separate from each other. And so when you're looking at nature and the ecosystem that we're all a part of, it's a very large body that we call earth. You can't take one piece out and take a look at it and say, this is the only thing that we're going to be concerned about. There's something from an indigenous point of view is that all of grandmother earth is sacred. The whole is sacred. We have a commitment to her to take care of her. That's why we call her grandmother. <laughs> and so if we can look at her as a whole being rather than bits and pieces that we can start to remember our connection to her and that we actually see ourselves as a whole being rather than bits and pieces. You know, there, there's another thing is that we don't, we don't own her. 
if she decided that she was done with the human race, done with the two-legged, it would be so easy for her to shake us off her body. We have such a, a loving and complicated relationship with her. Literally, we are one of her children. How does a parent correct or explain to the child why they can't do this or can't do that or why they should do something? How does a parent do that? Shows them consequences. And I think we're being shown consequences. And so for those of us that are awake and we see, sense, or feel it, is to be able to use our voices in some way to say, you know, let's listen to this. Let's let's go out and, and actually pick up some trash. Take your children with you to pick up the trash. You know, some people think that it's so, you know, overwhelming. You know, what, what can I do? You know, I'm not going to affect anything. Well, when everything that we do affects someone else, we're so interconnected. Start locally, start in your own backyard. What are you doing to affect your own home? What are you doing? If you feel like that's the extent that you can you can help, well, then that's fine. That's good. At least you're doing something. There's others that will take on a more regional or national or international because, because they're meant to. How are we planting our garden? How are we tending it? How do you want others to experience that? You know, what do you do for other people? We live in a world of duality. When you see the really negative and very low vibrational side of it, what's the opposite? Because there is an opposite. So what, where is that? Where do you find your joy? What place is that? And go there, put your energy there. I can't tell you how much I've appreciated this opportunity to, to be with you and to um, express my belief, my heart. We're all a part of the, the same universe, the same world, the same grandmother earth. And uh, it just gives me such joy to be able to, to take this time to be with you. And so thank you. in uh, Potawatomi, it is Ketchimigwich, which is a very large thank you, um, and also Iguian. Iguian is a more formal thank you that we reserve for elders and for special occasions. And so I want to tell you, Iguian, for giving me the opportunity to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nordic by Nature on Belonging. You can find more information on our guests and a transcript of this podcast on imaginarylife.net slash podcast. Nordic by Nature is an imaginary life production. The music and sound has been designed by Diego Losa. You can find him on diegolosa.blogspot.com. 
Please help us by sharing a link to this episode with the hashtag Traces of North and follow us on Instagram at Nordic by Nature Podcast. We are also on Patreon if you would like to support us with a donation to keep this podcast going into a second series next year. Please see patreon.com slash Nordic by Nature. If you are interested in nature-centered mindfulness, please see foundnature.org to read about the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature. You can follow the Foundation on Facebook and on Contemplation of Nature on Instagram. You can contact Andrew and Kyla via their website, roguedwellings.com. Yvette is the CEO of Star Nations, a multimedia company with a global community. Please see starnations.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on our podcast. Please don't hesitate to email me, Tanya, on nordicbynature at gmail.com.